Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Good. Nice to talk with you again. Good. What sort of criminal justice ideas do you have to share with us today? Well, I'm uh, off to Connecticut. Okay. And, uh, the topic there is um, looking at the issue of community engagement. That is, when you're working with people who are been in prison, getting out of prison, getting ready for release, trying to make it, you've really got to have people from the community who own that process. They're not secondary to the Department of Correction, they're primary. Mm-hmm. These are these are our citizens who are returning to us. They grew up here, they live here, this is where they're going to be employed, pay taxes, raise their kids, etc. <clears throat> and while the Department of Corrections has them for a number of years, could be five, could be ten, it doesn't change that trajectory of they came here now they're coming back they're returning to us right and what's happened over the years is the department of corrections because they control the prisons obviously and usually oftentimes the same agency that runs the prisons runs the parole system okay if not the same agency then a sister agency or a brother agency is that a good um, thing uh well bureaucracies have to run these right. uh, entities so yes but the shortcoming is that they're not community development agencies. They're bureaucracies. Right. They don't uh, focus on neighborhoods. They don't focus on development, etc. They don't focus on anti-poverty, which all this is part of. Okay. So when you consider then what it takes to change things and to reduce the rate of return to prison or recidivism or return to conviction, which is another form of recidivism, okay. or a return to criminal activity, yet another form of recidivism, in all those cases, you've got to have very clear ownership and engagement from the community, from the activists, the advocates, the family members, the formerly incarcerated persons. And in a sense, and this is a big, a big lift, but in a sense, the Department of Correction is there to serve those people, not the other way around. And so there's a lot of research that goes into this. There's a lot of different ways to talk about it, but that's what's on my mind this morning. Okay. Well, so the other the other aspect of this in Connecticut, for example, where advocates and activists, stakeholders, they may run human service agencies, et cetera. They're probably engaged with family members, formerly incarcerated persons. They push the legislature, the executive branch of the judiciary to change things. In the case of Connecticut, in many states, the executive branch, through the leadership of the governor, in this case, Governor Malloy, the former governor of Connecticut, he embraces it in a big way and he makes it a centerpiece of his legacy. And so over the course of his entire term in office, he's promoting this and pushing this. And this is a fantastic thing. This is what you want. Right. But at the same time, there's a downside. It ends up furthering the dynamic that it's a top-down process that's run and owned by the state. Uh, And the communities can have either a greater or a lesser uh, piece of that, so to speak. And in in the case of Connecticut, they did have good engagement of what's called these local re-entry roundtables. But at the same time, now that the governor's gone, there's a new governor, where does it go? Who continues it? If it's all on the governor and the governor leaves, then who continues it? It's got to be, for longevity, sustainability, taking things up to scale, it's got to be completely owned by the community. So part of what is happening there Hmm. is later this week, uh, this is uh, March uh, 14th, uh, March 13th, I should say, there's going to be a statewide conference of the advocates and the uh, activists and all the people that had promoted this thing in the first place, who recently published a report calling for a new 
era of strategic planning mm -hmm. that had more community ownership to basically respond to the gap that's been filled by the governor's departure while they're kind of waiting uh, for the new governor to determine, you know, where he stands on these types of issues. But know that when you're thinking about the pol political perspective, that if the outgoing governor owns something, the incoming governor isn't likely to say, yes, I love that too. Of course. The new governor wants to put their own you change you know, title on it and own it. And particularly if it's a governor of a different party, and I'm not sure uh, what the case is in Connecticut, I think they may be of the same party, but it doesn't matter because the new governor wants to brand it for him or herself. Right. I remember when I was working for the governor of uh, Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, and she wanted me to look at all of the different people who were named to commissions and boards across the state related to justice issues or anti-poverty issues or whatever. And I came back with a, a list of Republicans that needed to be replaced. And she said, well, where are the Democrats that I'm replacing? Huh. And I said, well, I don't know. Why would you replace the Democrats? They support you. You're, you're a Democrat. She said, they're not my Democrats. Huh. You know, yeah. and it's the same kind of thing, you know, and, and when you consider criminal justice reform, you've got to consider these these ownership issues and right. these relationship issues. And then this this um, the timetable of governors coming in, you know, feeling their way around for a year, almost two years. You can get a lot done when you're incoming governor, particularly if you won a popular vote by a margin. And, and they say that you have a mandate for the things that you promised, et cetera. You hear that. But right. then you got to run again. Then as you run again, you become more timid in terms of some of the more provocative things you might have otherwise done. And now you're setting up a bunch of other promises. And then you go through re-election. Most governors do get re-elected if they're eligible for two terms. And then you get re-elected. You've got another two years where you can get some stuff done. But then after that, you're a lame duck. So over an eight-year trajectory of a gubernatorial leadership, you basically got about four good years that you can get stuff done. And when I do justice reform, I try to get into a state when they're in the beginning of that, you know, uh, right. certainly in the first four years. Otherwise, you're dealing with all sorts of additional political noise that uh, is difficult to sort through. So is there a way to, uh, for someone in, in the community to let the governor feel like they're like they're doing changes, but just continue to do it the, the good way that it was that, it, that it's been going? Like, for instance, I've heard I've heard um, musicians say that sometimes when you're in, in their recording studio, they'll have a, a couple of a couple of knobs that aren't really connected to anything. So that when the the producer bigwig comes in and, and there's like oh this this I need to change something they'll say yeah we'll turn that knob over there oh yeah that, that sounds perfect now just to uh -huh. to to give sort of a um, a sense that to the to the boss that they're that they're doing stuff but yeah. not not letting them break it if that makes yeah sense. well it it's it, it it to do it well if you have the communities own it and they're responsible for it and it is their legacy right that that issue of ownership can begin during an election campaign, which is when you really need to get to people that are eventually going to be elected is while they're running. They're much more eager to talk to you. They're much more eager to listen. They are more likely perhaps to make some commitments if those commitments don't seem particularly provocative. Right. And if nothing else, you can convince them not to say stupid stuff. I'm going to be tough on crime. I'm going to extend the length of imprisonment. I'm going to extend the number of people in prison, even though and while there's a debate about this, many research would agree that there's not much of a relationship between in the incarceration rate and, and the crime rate. Um, right. So you at least don't want them to do any harm. But when a person running for office understands that there is a community-owned program 
And if in the case of Michigan, for example, that program is owned by not just one or two or three communities, but is statewide, everywhere that candidate goes, they're going to hear the same thing. Hmm. We own this. This is a good thing. And a, a person running for election is going to say, I'm really impressed with what the communities have done. I support their work. Right. I'm going to continue that effort to do the role that I have in government, which is a more limited role. Mm hmm. To make sure when they're in prison, they're getting the programming they want. And prior to release, we have access. We'll give them access to the prisoners so they can interact with them and create these individualized reentry plan. That's the time that you want to, you know, so to speak, bring them in the sound room and let them play with the knobs. Right. right. Because if you wait until they say the dumb stuff, it's already kind of too late. Mm -hmm. And then if you wait until they're in office, suddenly you're not dealing with a person in a very small entourage. Most campaigns have got one or two people that you have to deal with. Right, right. There's a person over scheduling. There's a person, you know, you may have volunteers over certain policy. I was the head of uh, policy uh, for uh, justice for the incoming governor when, when Governor Granholm was running. And there's a couple of people like that. But once you're in the seat, right. you now have entire departments of people and entire staffs of people, and there's layers. And in order to get something done, it's got to be vetted in a much more uh, inclusive way, and it's harder. So you really want to make those tracks and get those commitments made. And, you know, and to the point, lots of, uh, you know, uh, major newspapers, uh, radio stations, et cetera, will have candidates on. And they may pepper a few questions about justice issues in the questions or in the case of uh, one of the papers in Michigan, uh, Detroit uh, News, I believe it is, News of the Free Press, which is owned by the same uh, company now, um, they would dedicate an inquiry, uh, question and answer written from the candidates on just justice issues. Hmm. And that kind of comes and goes depending on where you're at in the in the history of uh, the state or the country for that matter, whether it's important or not. This particular election cycle, criminal justice was barely talked about when Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer is a very, uh, very smart uh, former legislator, senator, former prosecutor, uh, really smart on justice issues. She really was impressed during the election to give much opinion about uh, you know, prisoner reentry or justice reforms. So there's not a big record there to try to, to overcome. If she had been pressed, she would have said, and to the extent that she was asked, she did say smart things. So we had some impact on her campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, I met with her, others met with her, and, and you know, she's of like mind, uh, you know, being in the same party with some of the same uh, progressive views. But in other places, that's less the case. So you've got to think about that. Communities, when they own it, are strategic and activist. And they have to think long term. If they have local centralized bodies of, 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 you know, with some authority who are really the spokesperson or the leaders of that effort, then that's required as well. And that's a lot about that's a lot what I talk about when I travel to these other states, community engagement, but disciplined engagement using evidence based practices and a model so that what they do and what they own is smart. And then they communicate that and it's adopted by the elected officials. And I suppose it's it's um, smart to talk to all the candidates, you know, not just one, because you, that one might not win. Right. Well, and, and that's true, particularly early on. Right. You know, in one in one project, when I worked for the North Point Institute for uh, Public Management in Traverse City, Michigan, we uh, raised grant money from the Public Welfare Foundation in Washington, D.C. to meet with gubernatorial candidates who were within five or six points of winning 
And so instead of talking with six or seven candidates, we only talk with probably two or maybe only one mm -hmm. because they were more likely. So you don't want to spread yourself too thin. If you're a community group, though, yes, you do want to speak with all candidates, and that should help you determine which candidate you want to get behind. The other thing that you've uh, mentioned in one of the other uh, discussions we've had is about uh, former prisoner voting rights. Okay. There's been a lot of press lately about Florida that now has um, had well over a million disenfranchised uh, persons who were formerly incarcerated. Of course, uh, as the press would say, largely Democrat. Uh, inordinately, people of color, of course, because they're disparately represented in the justice system to begin with. Right. And now they're there and they're a voting block. Well, you want to take a look at something interesting. Look at the percentage of victory in a tight race for governor in Florida and look at how many votes that number is and then compare that number of votes that made the difference with one million voters. If those formerly incarcerated persons voted as a block. Yeah. They have the capability to change the outcome of an election. That's pretty and So in order to get them organized, it's not just, you know, communication, which is a big part of it. It's also, uh, you know, deliberate dissemination of important information, getting them to the polls, making sure that they're registered. And there's all sorts of organizations and associations, particularly led by formerly incarcerated persons. I think I've mentioned in Louisiana, vote the voice of the experience used to be called the voice of the ex-offender, which is not a term that's particularly PC anymore, but they're in the in the spot of generating this type of enthusiasm among formerly incarcerated persons so that they can vote. In Michigan, as part of the Michigan Council of Criminal Delinquency, where I worked for a while, we formed up in, 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 in our housing or fostering a group called Nation Outside, mm -hmm. which with 10,000 people getting out of prison every year in Michigan, every five years, 50,000, every 10 years, 100,000, and those persons touching a life, let's say, of three or four people, over the course of a decade, you've got half a million people that if they were a voting block, they certainly could change the outcome of an election. Sure. But that's easier to say than it is to do. But it gets back to this point of, you know, community ownership of, of this issue. Um, and, and as another, uh, a, you know, point of reference, it's also important to consider where services are delivered in those communities because they should be done within proximity to the to the to the neighborhood where the person lives and make it easier. So there's a whole nother perspective of this issue of engagement, community engagement. Right. So tell me more about what you're going to be doing in Connecticut. So they have this uh, annual conference every year put on by the uh, University of Connecticut in uh, Hartford. And um, it's an annual event, well attended, over 300 people. And it is the one time in the year that everybody from all uh, justice subsystems, uh, law enforcement, parole, prisons, jail, et cetera, all come together mm -hmm. um, and kind of catch up with each other. They network and it's a, a kind of a go-to event, a very well attended. I was there uh, many years ago. It's, and, it's, uh, just, it's just people from in, inside Connecticut? For the or most part. Okay. No, it's, it's not a national event. It's a state event, but I wouldn't be surprised if they draw in some national folks. I'm not from Connecticut, obviously, so they, they drew me in, but I was a speaker many years ago when they had just suffered this tragic event where a person released from prison was on parole, kidnapped a couple uh, and burned them to death. And it, it was so uh, terrible. And of course, like anything this terrible, a lot of press and a lot of politics right. that the governor was moving and eventually suspended parole. And uh, suspended it, parole means meaning uh, that uh, persons were not going to be let out uh, at the earliest possible time or in an earlier date right. until further notice. And a parole is not a, a right. It's a privilege. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and a parole board or a releasing agency has the prerogative to parole you or not. Right. They can keep you in for your your maximum term. It's called a max out mm-hmm. or not. And parole boards, decision makers on release make that decision based on a bunch of things. Sometimes, uh, just to go into the weeds a bit, they they make that decision not based on what you've accomplished while you're in prison, the degree of habilitation or rehabilitation that you've accomplished, but they go back to the original crime and in some sense they retry you. And they 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 they're looking for a, you know continued remorse. Wow. They look at how terrible the crime was, and if you're a, a prisoner or you know you or a prisoner's family member, you could say, hey, we went through all that ten years ago. I did ten years as a result of this. The judge gave me five you know uh, you know five to twelve, six to twelve. Right. I'm now eligible for parole, so I haven't uh, broken any rules. I've been a model prisoner. I've been going to classes, et cetera doing everything I possibly can. I've got a job lined up. I've got a place to live lined up. And the parole or the releasing authority says, well, that may be, but for what you did, we're not going to let you out. And I've got a letter here in front of me from a prisoner in, in Michigan who's done over 20 years. He was a, committed a murder. It was a, a heinous crime. Um, not the worst murder, I could say that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm no judge of these things, but, um, but it was premeditated. Right. And after being in prison for over 20 years, he's been eligible for parole. Uh, every five years, and he's continually told no. And recently, the uh, parole uh, board contacted him, gave him a date, and said, you know, be ready. He wasn't, uh, he was surprised that the date was earlier than what he thought it would be, so he lined up everything, communicated with his family members, uh, uh, documented his job, he had money in the bank, and the parole board didn't even consider him. They terminated the meeting, and they denied his parole. And he wrote me, and he said, you know, forget about that's, the emotional stress on, yeah. on me and my family, but just think about the cost of the Department of Corrections and the taxpayers for going through all this. Why do they do this in the first place? Now, the, the question becomes, that's just mean. you know, what 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 ends of justice are met? Because a man who's been in prison well over 20 years, uh, you know, and, and not to minimize the impact on the family of, of the, of the of deceased. I mean, we can't we, we can't be in their shoes unless you you've lost someone to murder. But nonetheless, there's got to be some balancing, balancing of, of, of rehabilitation and punishment, retribution. How much does it take? Right. How much what how many pounds of flesh does it take? And consider it forty five dollars a day times three sixty five wow. times five, 10, 15, now 20 years. What does that cost? We've invested well over a million dollars, perhaps, in any given case. And to what end? Right. Is, is you know, and are we going to wait until until Doug is, you know, 65 and can't work anymore and and then we let him out as an old man and and now he's drawing down on the social network for support i mean these are things that you've got to take into account now imagine that if doug had he's got good uh, community support in that he can document family support a job a place to live and all that but imagine if his community were better organized around re-entry and there were a local re-entry council there that had hundreds of people involved and this is part of what they did and they also had, as advisors to that local organized effort, elected officials, the head of the chief, the chief of police, the head of local parole agency, et cetera, supporting the work. And they supported this effort and wrote a lot of letters and started making phone calls in support of what Doug did. That right. would change the nature of it, perhaps. Right. But it gets back then to this fact of the politics of it. You know, we have a, you know, Doug was, he wrote me a month ago when, um, uh, the governor, uh, governor of Michigan, was was done, uh, and uh, 
most governors at the tail end of their term, they do commutations. And a commutation means that, you know, I'm going to uh, reduce uh, the uh, exposure that you have to the justice system and I'm going to issue a commutation which reduces your time or even a pardon. Mm -hmm. That's much in the news lately. And what that does is that if it's a commutation, allows the paroling authority to then take a look at the case and say, okay, well, now you don't have to serve all that time. And, and so Doug was a consideration, right. you know, and he never, he never made the list and he didn't have enough support. If you want the political system to work for you, you have to be political. Right. And in order to be political, you have to have a political plan. And in order to have a plan, you've got to have a body to do the plan and you have to have a forum. So as I leave for Connecticut, I'm talking to these groups of people that are organized at the community level, and now they're coming together in a statewide conference, and one of the recommendations that they've made in this report that they recently issued is that there should be a centralized authority in the state that's got community ownership that is responsible for trying to enact better, smarter strategies, more permanent, more sustainable strategies that that have a greater impact on the return to prison rate. And so that's part of what I'll be talking to them about. Do you have a lot of prisoners that write you letters? Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, and um, when I was the chief deputy director of the Michigan Department of Corrections and head of parole, that was something that I stayed away from. Once you start and you start answering yeah. letters, I mean, you can imagine. Uh, um, but then after I left, um, it, it continued. I don't. I don't get a lot. I don't do it a lot. I've been corresponding with Doug for for, for quite a while, mm-hmm. um, and I will do that uh, on occasion. Uh, but I don't uh, because that I don't have much um, access, or I can't do much about it. Right. Exactly. It. They could. They could you know, say, I, hey, "Can you help me?" I don't want to overpromise, and and I'm a former this and a former that. I currently have no standing or responsibility whatsoever. So, you know, it's. Uh, but you know, with Doug, I, I, Doug invited me to the prison when I was working in the Department of Corrections and I gave a, a, a graduating, his graduating class in one of his prison classes, a speech. And I met him then when he was a young guy. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, some 30 years ago. So we've had a relationship for all that time. And he's a remarkable man, a remarkable man. And I just feel for him. I think he'd be a, a highly contributing uh, member of our uh, society, successful. And you can imagine how persuasive he could be, for example, of working with young people or in the first, you know, go around with the justice system and help them. He's 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 true blue, you know, yeah. and uh, that's a uh, very, very, very important. And uh, I, I don't think that justice is served by continuing to, to keep him locked up. Right. Are a lot of the community activists mm, former prisoners? Well, uh, yeah, uh, certainly. And um, and also their family members, yeah, I was say, particularly family, members, family right. members prior to their release. Right. And they will come to meetings and, and, and do a lot of stuff. And if they're balanced, a family member's balanced, right. they're going to help the common good and try to raise those waters of reform yep, yep, yep. while at the same time dealing with the individual circumstances of their loved one. If they're out of balance, they're going to be almost totally concerned with just what's happening with their case, so to speak. Right. And you've got you've to uh, promote you know, uh, that volunteer work to promote the, the good, not to ignore the individual case, but you, you know, it, it can't be just about that. Right, right. And to the degree that they're better organized, the better off we are as well. Um, so like nation outside here developing in Michigan or vote in Louisiana and every state has got, you know, probably a group, small or large, could be urban based, et cetera, that's that's made up, comprised of these folks. In North Carolina, there was a group that I uh, worked with when I was a young guy called 
uh, the ex-convicts organization back when ex-con was the political term that former prisoners used themselves. And I became director of that at a young age. And I changed the name to to keep the acronym ECHO to Energy Committed to Offenders. <laughs> um, and now they've renamed themselves the uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Transition Center, I believe. Right. You know, and they're still successful after all these years. It's quite a it's, it's I feel very proud to have something to do with something that lasted all these years. But uh, in, in, in that case, similar to other places, it was run by people who've been in prison. I was the only person in the agency that hadn't done time. Huh. And in Nation Outside, their bylaws, uh, even though they're not a 501c3 yet, they're fostered by this MCCD, this Michigan Council. Um, their bylaws required that a majority of the board are people that have spent time in the state prison system. And the better organized you are and the more formal you are and the more disciplined you are, the better you're likely to expand your numbers. If you want to organize 100,000, a block of 100,000 former prisoners as a block, mm -hmm. you better be well organized and you better be funded. In order to be funded, you have to have organizational uh, uh, you know, documentation and, and, uh, and strength. Right. In order to have that, you got to have a plan. In order to have that, you got to have good staff. And so that's what I promote is greater discipline, organizational development. You have to have a forum. You can go to any place you want and people will be talking the talk. Mm -hmm. And the talk is good, but they got to be able to walk the walk. They've got to be able to take their values and their principles that they're so clear about and put them into action. And the history of criminal justice reform in the country is one of great, uh, admirable accomplishments in talking the talk <laughs> and unable to walk the walk and so that the efforts fail at implementation. If you want to implement a small program with 100 people, well, that's one right. level of difficulty. Right. But if you want to expand that to 100, 200, 500, and then move it from one urban center to another urban center, then you've got another degree of complexity and you've got to have discipline and the ability to measure process and impact and then adjust along the way. In order to do that, you've got to be organized. You've got to be staffed. And in order to go from pilot projects across the state to something that's statewide that you can take up to scale so that you have an impact statewide, you've got to be highly disciplined. You've also got to have strong partners inside and outside of the political system and inside and outside of state government. An organized group of formerly incarcerated persons got to join hands with the network of human service professionals and their boards of directors who has to join hands in a vital partnership, if not a formal partnership protected by a memo, MOU, a memorandum of understanding or agreement with the Department of Corrections. In order to get that formalized, you have to have formal processes. You have to have staff. You have to have funding. In order to have funding, you've got to be organized. So there's a kind of a catch-22 of it yeah. that it gets down to take your passion and organize it into activity and, and, and production that leads toward performance and document it. And uh, so that's a lot of, of, of the gospel that I preach, so to speak. And do you sometimes take a more active role rather than just uh, giving lectures, for example? But actually, that's, that's, a, do... that's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, yes, uh, and it doesn't uh, often. I might even say doesn't usually work very well. So, in fact, as I prepare to to go to Connecticut, and uh, I'm still active in uh, Louisiana, I've been active in Georgia, Montana, Alaska, you know, a bunch of different places. And depending on where I am, and I look back on it. I was either more or less engaged. I was either acting in a leadership role more or less, mm -hmm. or I was acting more or less as a technician. I think I'm much more productive when I act more like a technician because the trouble with leadership that comes from out of state is that it's not sustainable. Right. And as a consultant and a technical assistant, I should assist. 
you're, you're, better, so, at, you're, you're better at, at having the ear of, of, a, of a leader. Than you, you, yes, but actually. that's difficult to do. I've got uh, leadership qualities and I've been a leader in, in my own right. And it's easy for me to fall into that. But one of the things, the criticism that, 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 that I've heard uh, to the degree that I accept it or not is a whole nother uh, matter of my psyche um, is that, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I act like I'm in charge and of course I'm not. Right. And I've had clients who, because I press a particular issue, will say that famous quote of what part of no don't you understand? And then I remember, of course, that my role is to support. But I, I as a technician and a technical assistant, it's appropriate for me to push for principles and evidence based practices that prove that they work. And if they're going if the place I'm working is going to do things that are against that, then it's a matter of principle to me whether I continue or not. I can draw a line in the sand anytime I want. Right. But uh, if they're if they're going to do stuff that may not be perfect, but it's plenty good, you know, I should let that happen. And, you know, as, as, as we've talked, you know, the, the if, if, if implementation is uh, the, the, the fount of reform is a spring at the top of a mountain and implementation is the the trickle of that stream running down the mountain. It's not a straightforward path. It's running into blocks and barriers, rocks and logs and things that. The water pools, it has to overcome the barriers or it has to go around things. Yeah. As a technician, I have to advise folks as to whether or not that barrier that they're going to cross or change the nature of their approach so damages the model that it will more than diminish the impact and could have the opposite effect that they want. Well, and, if, and if you're a, like if you've done this in several different places, you have a you could you know warn them about the obstacles that are ahead that they might not see because you've gone through this process a number of times. That's um, a big part of it. That's a big part of it. And, and part of what, what I say is, and I say this to Connecticut when I'm there, is you know maybe this is the place where uh, uh, they do it better than many of the other places I've had. And I can give example after example where this issue of implementation has stopped things dead in its track. A lot of the challenge with reform, even if it's statutorily based, meaning that there's a law that says you have to do it, it's not often and perhaps not even usually the case that the people that are in charge in the bureaucracies have got the competency and the capacity that they need to be able to make the changes. So if you change a law that says that, uh, you know, it's by law, every person has to have a pre-employment plan before release. They have to have 85 percent of them have to have jobs before they're released. You can put that in statute all day long. But if you don't give the Department of Corrections and the parole authority enough staff and enough money and enough capability to do this enormous work that it takes to secure those jobs and promote this work uh, across the entire business community, which of course is interested in the bottom line long before they're interested in social issues. Not to say they're not interested in social issues, they are, but if you want to do that work, you've got to be prepared. Yeah, you can't, so, you can't, legisl- you can't make a law that says you, you have to be juggling all the time if you don't teach right. people how to, how to do right. it. And it's a, it's a criticism of some national reform projects that I think I've mentioned to you before that they, uh, you know, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, which has just got some powerful accomplishments over the past, you know, 15 years that they've been doing it or so. But their uh, definition of success is they pass statutes and they change the laws. Well, if they don't, you know, take advantage of the of the of that opportunity to make certain that there's enough money to implement well and to evaluate that both in terms of the process Meaning, are you doing what you said you would do? Are you following your own laws and policies? That's the first question. Mm-hmm. And if that's not answered well, the second question doesn't matter that much. And the second question is, what's your impact? And you've got to have both process and impact evaluations. Well, that stuff ain't free. And and one of the reasons I'm thrilled about Connecticut University of Connecticut uh, or uh, Connecticut is involved, and so they understand these interrelated issues 
and they are uh, speaking from the voice of the community, which to me is a much more powerful voice and a much more a longer term voice, right? right. Than working for the government. I work for governors. I work for heads of the Department of Correction, but those people come and go. Governors every four, governors every eight. The the length of term or length of stay to, to make a pun, the length of stay of corrections directors in this country mm-hmm. is two and a half years, and it usually doesn't end well. Wow. So the heads of departments of corrections, it's like a turnstile. They're in and they're out. And so if you're hitching your wagon to a horse that's only got two and a half year trajectory, and yet we know that these reforms take five to 10 years, right, right. it just doesn't going to work. Is, that because, why it, is go, that because it's such a hard job and the governors think that don't understand how difficult it is? And when, it's an impossible. And when the people fail to do whatever they was expected of them, then they get shown the door and then... A new guy comes in that underestimates the difficulty of the thing and says, sure, I can do that, and then discovers that it's impossible, like you say. Yeah, uh, it's all that. It's it's all that and more. Uh, and, and the worst of it is, is that, you know, the you, you're held responsible for what happens. Right. And when we're doing uh, prisoner reentry work, we're very clear that we're trying to reduce criminal activity of former prisoners. And we hasten to say we're not eliminating it. Right. There will continue to be crimes, some heinous crimes, by people that have done time in prison. So when that crime happens, and, right. and, and I've experienced this as head of reentry in Michigan, where there is a murder, a serial killing, a rape, et cetera, if you're not clear and don't have the support of law enforcement and you know people that are conservative on the, the spectrum mm-hmm. that you're trying to reduce crime, not eliminate it, then that will kill the effort. If you're a head of a Department of Corrections, and I experienced this when I was working in Alaska, where they put a you know a, a, a brilliant uh, man, Ron Taylor, who's now the head of the uh, 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 prison uh, division for the National Institute of Corrections. He was appointed from the Assistant Secretary of Reentry for the State of Alaska Department of Corrections into the head of the Department of Corrections. And over the course of time, before he was the Secretary of Corrections and during his time, there was a series of deaths in mm-hmm. the prison system. And of course, he was held responsible for them. The number of deaths weren't any greater over the course of time that there were in any other year, but they happened in close proximity. And his head role. Right. During the press conference, when he when the governor announced, uh, I think it was Governor uh, uh, Walker might have been his name. He uh, he announced that he had asked for the resignation of head of corrections. One of the reporters said, but he wasn't the head of corrections when this happened, when some of these happened. And he said, well, somebody's got to lose their job. Yep. In, in an amazing politics. admission. Right. What he might have said, he might have said, and it sure as hell ain't going to be me. Right. You know, and so to say that out loud. That's, that's often what happens. But more than anything. It's a very, very tough job. It's an impossible job. And I've been blessed to work with some very effective corrections uh, directors uh, over over the experience. Of, uh, and um, we could get a lot done. Um, but at the same time, there's a limit to what they can do because of politics as well. They're political appointees in most places as, re- as opposed to civil servants. And so they come and go. Some places have a commission in between the governor and, and the secretary's job. And the governor appoints the commission, but to depoliticize the head of corrections job, it's the responsibility of the commission to hire that person. That's the way it was in Michigan for many years until they eliminated it. And they eliminated it because the governor wanted to pick the head of corrections and made the job political. And to this day, it's political. Well, Back to the whole issue, right? Yeah. How do we get things done, right? How long does it take? You know, who is who is concerned about the course of performance over 20 years when you're putting, uh, you know, talking the talk of, of putting money into some of the best crime reduction strategies that research has ever proven. Right. Yeah. Uh, Health care for children, 
particularly in single parent homes, nursing support, good food, right? Yep. Better education. Some states use mass scores of third graders to predict the size of the prison population in 15, 18 years. Who cares about that? If you're running for governor every four years and you really only got two years, how about if you're in the House of Representatives in a state and you've got a two-year term and the day that you're seated, you have to start running for re-election and everything you say and do has to be thought through that lens of I'm trying to raise money for re-election. Who do I have to please? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible, uh, challenging circumstance. It's kind of amazing that anything gets done. It is. In fact, well, and I'm glad you said that because, you know, one of the, uh, I mentioned the last time we talked this, uh, publication that, uh, Mark Marr from the sentencing project and Steve DeBoer from uh, Michigan and I, uh, wrote five States in there, uh, that have accomplished pretty good, uh, decarceration over the course of the five years. It's a legacy to these five States. And there's several others that got a lot of press that we didn't examine, but in the five States we looked at, including Connecticut, including Michigan, one of the reasons we wrote about them is that years after those reforms, they stuck. And what was it about that experience that made it stick? Two things, political leadership coupled with strong administrative leadership, meaning the head of the Department of Corrections and that high-ranking staff had competency and capacity, two very different things, but also a degree of community engagement that created a partnership that would create less of a fear on the part of the politicians that when they say this stuff, they're not going to be beat up. If you're saying stuff that's smart on crime in communities that are better organized with formerly incarcerated person, activists, reformists, their family members, human service agencies, and their boards, when a governor speaks, there'll be applause. Right. If the the other side of the coin, more on the tough side, you know, and I I won't say law enforcement, law enforcement, some of the smartest people on prisoner reentry. And it's partly because law enforcement's not dictated by people who are elected. Exactly. Although it's dictated by people who are appointed, and those people who do the appointments <laughs> are, are politicians too. Okay. But yeah, yeah, you got to you, you have to switch it to be a virtuous cycle in some way. So, and again, it comes it comes down to yeah, what you said, having people in the community that give positive reinforcement to the politicians when they when they say smart things. How does um, how does the media coverage? Because that's politicians care a lot about you know, how they're talking yeah. about in, in the media. And that's, that is the way most voters get our information. Are there strategies for getting better media coverage for the oh, yeah. better ideas? And, well, it's, and how important it's, it's is enormous. that in the, in the whole scheme it's, of things? It's, it's enormous. It's very important. Um, so to begin with, uh, you've heard this expression, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And so you, you can pay attention to this any given day to turn on the news and watch what they open the news with. Oh, it, it's, yeah. all, it's all crime. So it's crime, Always. crime, crime, because yeah. that, 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 that gets viewers. It sells newspapers. Yeah. That's how they make their money. They got to sell stuff. And so that's there. So not surprisingly, you've got to be organized. There's strategies, there's tactics. You can, uh, uh, create, uh, media events. You work with the press for human interest stories. You have the statistics at your fingertips. You're working with people that are ordinarily interviewed mm-hmm. when stuff hits the fan. And those people who are interviewed are already coached. They're part of your team. Mm-hmm. You have talking points and messages. You have uh, public service announcements. You have speaking bureaus. You have published materials. You have pamphlets. You have talking points. You have all of these things organized. How do you do that? 
You have to have the competency and capacity. How do you do that? You have to be well organized. How do you do that? You have to be able to have money. How do you do that? You know, and it gets back into this thing again. If you want it to get done, you've got to have a plan. And here's the thing. People will say, I just don't have the money. We just don't have any money. Mm -hmm. They're focusing on the wrong thing. Money isn't a problem. A good plan will get funded. Planning is the problem. A good plan, you well communicated. Plan, well communicated, will get funded. It's If you plan it, they will come. Right? Like that Kevin Costner movie. Yeah. They build it. You know, if, if we build it, they will come. And it's the same kind of thing. You know, I've been part of uh, different states' efforts uh, to raise literally scores of millions of dollars. I'm not, I never kept track of it, but it's it's certainly double, triple digits. And in the work I've done, we've saved hundreds of millions of dollars over the over over the period of time. It's never been a problem to raise the money if there's a good plan, as you say, well communicated, but also um, put forth by credible organizations that are well organized. If I'm a funder. If I'm a, a you know one of the uh, one of the uh, Arnold family members that runs the Arnold Foundation mm-hmm. that, that gives away a couple hundred million dollars every every few years, and and I've got options as to where I can give money, you know like the Jet Foundation in New York City that that funded Michigan, yeah, you know millions of dollars that Bernie Madoff made off with their money and they closed their doors. But if you're sitting in that foundation seat and someone comes to you. You've got to feel confident that who you're giving money to isn't a fly-by-night operation. Right, because anyone can doctor. say anyone can say that they're going to reduce crime by 25, percent but sure. uh, actually showing and talking about your theories and the yeah. evidence that you've got behind it is uh, important. What's your plan? What are your deliverables? What are you going to do? What are you going to do the first 30 days, 90 days, 100 days? What are you going to do with a million dollars? How is it going to be spent? How are you going to evaluate that? Who do you have on your board? What's your level of engagement with the Department of Correction? I understand you're a reformist activist organization, but you are, after all, a group of formerly incarcerated people. The Department of Correction won't even let you in their prison system. Mm-hmm. The Department of Corrections won't even let you hang out with other parolees unless you've got a piece of paper that, that certifies that that's okay. Yeah. How are they working with you? Do you have a memorandum of understanding? Are they on your board? Do you have a letter of support you can show me? You better be ready for that stuff. And what you is, don't have a lot of opportunities. What is a memorandum of understanding? It's just a non-legal, non-binding agreement that, that basically says between two parties, this is what I'm going to do, this is what you're going to do, and we put it in writing so that we can be clear. Right. A memorandum of understanding is, is weaker than a memorandum of agreement, but in both cases, an MOU or an MOA is, it's the first paragraph, non-legal, non-binding, non-contractual, but it's a way to get clear between partners of what they're going to do, two-way, three-way. Mm-hmm. I advocate for a lot of that. It's really important for folks to get clear. To talk to talk, let's say that, that there's a group, five or six, eight people in a room, different agencies working with the Department of Correction, talking, talking, talking. Somebody's taking minutes. Well, as soon as you're out of that meeting, you better produce those minutes and put them in a draft and make sure that they're vetted. Meaning, hey, I read them and you're right, but you had this one thing wrong. You missed this one thing I said. I don't think I said that the way that I meant it. Mm-hmm. I want to change the, the record here. We can change it as an update to the minutes. I didn't mean that. I checked it and I can't do that. You got to have a record. If you have a series of meetings leading toward a more formal engagement and there's no money exchanging hands, therefore there's no contract, then one of the ways to document that is through a memorandum of understanding that you can use as the basis of that, those meeting notes. Well, if you've got somebody, if you're going to have a meeting, who's going to take the notes? Is that a volunteer? Are you going to pay them? Mm-hmm. Who's going to type them up? Who's going to vet them? Who's going to document it? Who's going to edit them? Who's going to disseminate them after the meeting is done? 
Who's going to keep the record? If you're an organization promoting reform and you're going to do this work, you need to do it. In fact, you want to volunteer to keep those minutes. You want to be in charge of the information. It's a very powerful position to be in. Of course, yes. Right? Yeah. And the way you say things sometimes can, can, can make all the difference in the world. But you've got you've to be formalized. While you can be more or less informal and promote reform and talk the talk, you can, you can put together a group of 1,000 people and march on the Capitol. And that can uh, interrupt or be part of a, a campaign. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, so what? Yeah. If, 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 if you're pressing the, the people that you're organized to, 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 to change and they give a speech and they say, you know what? I've met with the leaders of the people who are here today and uh, I you know, accept the challenge and I'm going to work with you. And then there's an applause line and the thousand people that are organized for the event all scream, well, good's great. Mm-hmm. So what? Who takes it the next step? Where does that show itself? If somebody that's running for governor or a governor says to a group of 10, 20 or a thousand, this is I want to do. Who's going to follow that through? Who's got two things? Competency, meaning the skill, the wherewithal and the capacity, meaning they've got the resource, they've got the time. Who's going to do that? That's got to be thought through. You better be ready to answer the questions when you sit down. If I'm sitting with um, the head of a foundation and I'm promoting something, I've got to be ready for them to say, you know, I've got, and I've had this happen to me where I was talking with a, a donor, wealthy man. He said, how much money do you want today? What would be successful for you? And he opened up a drawer and it was full of checkbooks. Wow. There's six, eight checkbooks in there. And I was ready. And I said, I need $25,000. And that will be able to do the things I said. And he said, and so what is it exactly that I would be supporting? And I'm not sure what it was. I kind of recall it was a staff position. I gave him a copy of the job description. Mm-hmm. How am I going to know that this person, I'm? what am I paying for half of them? How am I going to know they're successful? Well, there's quarterly reports. Here's our process and our impact evaluation. Here's our newsletter. Perhaps you'd like to be in our advisory committee and be there in person when we promote. You've got to be ready for that stuff. I was. Right. He wrote me a check for $25,000 and I left. If I, what, what am I going to say? I'll get back to you? He's right. going to push that drawer closed. Yeah. And so you've got to think about these things. And, it's not, it's, and again, it's not just about money, but it sure is a lot about money. <laughs> And it's more about planning. And, 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 and in any plan, you've got a mixture of you should have a mixture of volunteer board members and volunteers working in your organization. But also you've got to have paid staff. Right. And if you want to do it well, they've got to be educated and trained paid staff. That costs more money. Exactly. You know, and so it's uh, it, 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 it. The mantra is. Get your shit together. I mean, you, you got to if, if you want if you want stuff to change. You've got to be well enough organized to manage that change. And you can look at the folks that have gone before you and failed and succeeded and get an idea of that. And there's a lot of organizations that can support you. But it all gets down to what I think is grassroots organization and community ownership, community engagement, both as the place where services are provided, which should be more in neighborhoods. Right. You know, in Detroit, when we were uh, requiring people to get drug tests who lived in certain uh, economically deprived neighborhoods where a lot of them lived. They would have to walk from where they were to where they wanted to go to get the drug treatment, and they walked past crack houses. Okay. Well, that's quite a plan. That's quite a plan, you know. Every, every, all these neighborhoods in Detroit or all these urban centers, they've got churches, synagogues, temples. Community engagement requires you to really take advantage of the faith community that have been saying this stuff forever. Right. And while they're uh, certainly uh, clearer on helping their own, somewhat in their own parish or congregation, sure. they also often promote um, 
services for their part of town, for their neighborhood. Well, why not, why not put the services there? Why not do those in the church where the church can uh, also provide you child care? Why not do it in the evening? You know, there's a lot of things to consider. If you want folks to engage in services, you have to do it in their natural communities. That's what the research says. To the degree that you do that, yeah, you, you will easy. be more successful. Right. It's got to be easy. Got to reduce the friction and uh, yeah. yeah. And, and all this all this work of competency and capacity and formal organization has to be driven by what the research says. So there's a there's a tidbit here that if you want to be successful with people that are uh, drug addicted, particularly those that have a coing disorder of mental uh, uh, illness or uh, mental health needs, um, and you need to provide them services while they're inside and then continue those services when they're outside, the general ratio is 70 percent of the services should be outside, 30 percent on the inside. Well, if you're a Department of Corrections, a prison system, you can raise the money to do the 30% inside, but who's right. going to raise the money and do the 70% outside? And when you're considering that mean. 70%, where is that service going to be delivered? Is it going to be easy? It's one thing to be a motivated prisoner that, ha that who has fewer distractions and right. is motivated by the idea, I want to get out, particularly I want to get out sooner through a parole process. Very different than when you're back home, right. living in the very community where your neighbors your cousins, your best friends are using drugs right. and they come knocking on your door and they say, Hey, yo, yeah. you know, I got some beer. I got a spleef. Let's go out. Let's get high. And you got to say, no, that's the new me. I'm the new me. You have to have the support to be the new me. Exactly. The people that are used to the old you, let's say you were in a gang, they mm -hmm. might beat the crap out of you because yeah. you're a punk now. You won't, you know, you're, you're, you're abandoning them. Well, where's that support? What if your family were your victims? Who's your new family? What's the role of the faith community here? It's just yeah, all yeah. these issues related to whose issue is it? Who owns it? Who right. promotes it? Who's got the capacity and the competency to get a change? Who's got the long-term view? It's the community much more than it, it is, is bureaucracy. For sure, for sure. Next week on Seek Justice, we discuss the messed up world of plea bargaining. You hear this person say, I'm here for something I didn't do. Thank you for listening. The show notes for this episode, as well as all of our episodes, can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please help us by telling a friend, sharing us on social media, or giving us a positive review in iTunes. That really helps others discover the show. If you'd like to get in contact with us to suggest topics you'd like us to cover, we can be reached on Twitter at seekjusticefm or by email to seekjusticefm at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.